Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Delve into the visceral world of hip hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday. Already know. A podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The curing social, racial, economic, healthcare, and environmental justice for all of us is our mission every day. This is the purpose mission statement of former Ohio Senator Nina Turner. Defending against attacks on women's healthcare freedom, partnering with and advocating for working families, and organizing labor groups to protect collective bargaining rights. Nina Turner made history in 2005 as the first African-American woman to represent Ward 1 on the Cleveland City Council. And again in 2008 as the first African-American woman to serve as a state senator in Ohio's 25th district champion for criminal justice reform. She successfully led the efforts to create Ohio's first task force on police and community relations in the wake of the tragic police killings in Ohio and across the country. Prioritizing the building of a more robust and inclusive organizing infrastructure, as well as activities to rally support for Democratic candidates across the state and the nation. Dedicating her life to speaking truth to power and with an extraordinary record of accomplishments and demonstrated commitment to justice. Nina Turner has served as the chair of party engagement for the Ohio Democratic Party as a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign as national co-chair for Bernie 2020 and is currently the host of the Young Turks Unbossed podcast. A true humanitarian and futurist thought leader here with us to provide perspective and insight on President Biden's State of the Union address to discuss the current state of American democracy and the ideals of a progressive future that works for us all. We have former Ohio Senator, Professor, Justice Advocate and Activist, Ms. Nina Turner. I am Maggie B. Nowen, and this is the Black Information Network Daily Podcast with your host, Ramses Ja. Ms. Nina Turner, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you, Ram. It's, it's so good to be here with you. Uh, the, the pleasure is ours. Um, I, I can't wait to, to get into our conversation. So um, what we do on the show is we start at the beginning. Um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, uh, we want you to tell a little bit about your story, um, your upbringing, and 
you know, what led you to the career path that you're on? That grew up in Cleveland. So I'm a Midwestern girl, you know, the heart of the Rust Belt and uh, parents working poor, I would say poor without the other O and R in it, just really working class people. I'm the oldest of seven children. So in that way, I think uh, I was born to be a leader because when you're the oldest of seven, I had a lot of training (laughs) in that. As as I look back on my life now, I say, yeah, that's why I'm the oldest. But uh, definitely a hard life. You know, Langston Hughes' poem, Mother to Son, which I'm sure you're familiar with and many of your wonderful listeners, life ain't been no crystal stair, has that tacks in it and thorns in it places where I've never been, but I've been a climate. So don't you give up. So that poem, mother to son, it could be mother to daughter, mother to person. But that to me is like the foundational. If you ask me to kind of sum up uh, my life, it is really encapsulated in that poem and just really blessed. None of us arrive where we are today by just the weight of our own ambition or perseverance. It's always because somebody or a group of somebody's either paved the way or we're in our ear and that is my story summed up. I am a mo- mother uh, and uh, a yaya, a grandmother. People complete. Mm-hmm. I have to keep saying that to myself because my grandchildren always get mistaken for my children. So I still mm-hmm. got that going on. I thank I God like that. for that. But just, a, you know, hard life, but a blessed life. I had the opportunity to serve on the Cleveland City Council, college professor, as you laid out in my in my bio at Cuyahoga Community College, where I got my first degree. I'm such an advocate of community colleges, especially for first generation college graduates, because community colleges kind of nurture you differently than a university. Like they have time for you. Sure, sure. As a as a student. My dream was to go to Howard University, which I did end up taking a class or two there, but because of my life circumstances, when I did eventually go to college, I couldn't leave. My mother died at the young age of 42 years old. And for some people who are younger than that, they may think that that that, that is old, but that is very young to die. Mm-hmm. And she had a brain aneurysm and I was in my early twenties and it totally changed my entire life. And sometimes when something of that magnitude happens to somebody, it either can make you or break you. And I thank God Almighty that it made me, it pushed me even in my grief and my sadness and my questioning of God. It did force me to have a reckoning. And in that I wanted to make my mother proud even in death. So I'm a first generation college graduate, uh, went on to earn a master's, you know, associate's, bachelor's, master's, dabbled with my PhD, kind of put that on hold while I jumped into politics. And but even as as accomplished as even as proud as I am of that accomplishment, my most my greatest pride came when my son got his degrees, because we know that if parents get an education, you increase that likelihood. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was about becoming a cycle breaker. And I have done that. And I I feel so much like I'm only getting started. So city councilwoman, a state senator, as you laid out, had the opportunity to run for statewide office in 2014 as secretary of state to beat back against secretaries of states that were trying to suppress the vote, not just trying, but they were doing it. I was the only black candidate running either on the Democratic side or the Republican side. And it is so hard, as you know, uh, for black people to run statewide, Mm -hmm. then had the opportunity to work with Senator Sanders on his presidential campaign in 2016, just really believed in that that message of people need health care. And the reason why he touched me is for two reasons. One is the education side and also the healthcare side. My mother died young and I'm a first generation college graduate. And then in 2020, I was one of his national co-chairs 
and just learn so very much. Right now, I'm a fellow, senior fellow at the Institute of Race, Policy, and Political Economy at the New School, rocking with uh, the one and only stratification economist, Dr. Derek Hamilton, and so many other wonderful colleagues. And I have a show right now on the TYT Network, Unboss, and I'm writing like two books. So mm. hopefully, I don't know if I took three minutes to sum that up, no, but ask me any back. questions. I really wanted, I wanted to go really quickly. So my son and my two grandbabies are really like the center uh, of my life right now. Okay. Okay. No, we needed all of that. Listen, <laughs> it's, it's, it's time for that. So don't, don't hold back. We need it. So um, let's, let's get into a, some, some meat and potatoes here. All right. Um, you know, you mentioned growing up, uh, you know, very poor. That's an experience that, you know, um, a not insignificant amount of us can relate to. So when yeah. you think back to, you know, your firsthand experience of the impact of income inequality, uh, environmentally tri triggered and inflamed health conditions um, and problems with our health healthcare system, as I'm sure that, you know, you're acquainted with. Um, how would you say things have changed for Black families from then to now? And uh, what sort of progress has been made um, or has not been made in those areas? Well, it's mixed. Certainly things have changed. There's no doubt about it. The question becomes, have they changed quick enough or deep enough? Or main, mainly, have they changed deep enough? Mm -hmm. In some instances, yes. In some instances, no. I mean, the socioeconomic indicators for most Black families are pretty much the same, pretty much unchanged. And in some cases, worse. Uh, black children still go to schools that are inadequately funded are not as good as other schools and other communities that is still very much a reality the income wealth gap between or the wealth gap between uh, black families and black individuals compared to white families and white individuals that golf is still extraordinarily wide uh, so much so that even black children born to solidly middle class family black families have no guarantee that they can sustain that and then even if we expand out beyond our, our black people, a lot of families these days can't guarantee, like the previous generation can't look in the, the eyes of the, of the current generation and say that your life is going to be better. And so for black people, it is even worse because we're starting 400 years behind. Many promises have been made for, to us from the political, uh, on the political side of the ledgers, and not many of those promises have been kept. And I'm not talking about a few individuals who have achieved greatness. Hey, I'm all about that. I am talking about deep-seated generational change that only comes from systemic change by which only the federal government mainly, I shouldn't say only, but the federal government has the biggest stick to be able to make those things happen. So economically, socially, politically, environmentally, racially, Black people are behind the the uptick in uh, white supremacy in our faces up again. I mean, we might as well go ahead and put up the white water fountains and the colored water fountains because they all up in our face. All we have to do is look to Florida, for example, that crazy uh, Trump got one thing right, naming that dude desanctimonious. So that is exactly what he is. He is using his power to try to rewrite a type of history that never existed in this country. Mm -hmm very reminiscent of what happened to black people in the 60s and the 50s and very reminiscent if we go all the way back to the founding of this nation and that blackness was always seen as inadequate or somehow dangerous right and it was always vilified and so black bodies marred 
and 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 soaked uh, with uh, with with hatred. And I'm I'm being kind when I say hatred because we were dehumanized on so many levels. You fast forward to the 21st century, we see we see imprints of that. So as 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 far as we've come with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and you know black folks doing their thing in sports and entertainment, all beautiful, 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 beautiful. But the vast majority of our people are still suffering and struggling. I can't look in the eyes of my son or in my grandchildren and tell them that they're going to have it better or that all that I've worked for will submit for them for the rest of their lives. A sturdy foundation can't say it to them and many black families who are even less uh, accomplished than, than I am. At this stage in my life, that I grew up poor, they can't say the same thing. So, as much as things have changed, they still pretty much remain the same for Black people when we look at how we measure progress socially, economically, uh, politically, and environmentally. I I appreciate your response. I, I can I can sense your emotion uh, there, and and I I shared that emotion with you. I'm a father myself, and one of the things that I worry about is you know I have two sons. Um, I don't know if they will know the things that I know. And I know that I don't know the things that my father knew. And that concerns me because I won't be here forever. And if they don't know what I know and they cannot know what I know, then will they be as equipped to take on the world and add to that, that I never felt like my sons were born my sons certainly are not, were not born to die. Um, but, you know, born to fight, you know, it's a part of, you know, being a man and, and, you know, blackness in America. I think that everybody does their part to kind of push, you know, the agenda forward, but, uh, they, I haven't found in either of them the same spirit that, you know, that rage against the machine type spirit. And, uh, I, I always want to think that that's okay and they don't have to fight. They can be, but I also recognize that the world that we live in, the country we live in does not allow that for, for black skinned uh, boys and men, uh, nor does it allow for uh, black skinned girls and women. And so um, again, I, I completely uh, understand the emotion behind what you're saying there. And I recognize there's a lot to do and, and a lot of work to do on the political side, especially because as you mentioned, that's, that's where we can make the, the biggest impact. So let's lean into that for a bit. Um, you know, Joe Biden just uh, delivered a state of the union address. Um, so if you could give us your thoughts on how he did and uh, you know, let's, let's go over the topics that he covered uh, and, but sort of what you felt in terms of was it performative? You know, do you really think that there's there's some momentum there, something we can do and carry some some energy into this year and into next year as well? On the positive side, I, I the president was very much himself. I mean, you could tell that he was very comfortable in his skin and being very conversational. Mm-hmm. And that's really the best that I could say about mm-hmm. the State of the Union. Overall, okay. I do think that it was performative. I want our people, I want all people, we talking about black people. So we center in black people. I want our people to stop being seduced by symbols Mm -hmm. and look at the substance of the thing. 
The Nichols family was there. My heart ached just seeing them there, right? They putting aside their grief for that brief time that they were there at the State of the Union, which is an honor, right? The President of the United States asked you to come, you come. So this is no nothing on the Nichols family. They were there and they set aside their grief for that moment to say to the world, we need some reform in policing. Beautiful that they were there. However, this president said to the family of George Floyd, that we're going to pass the George Floyd Policing Act. Didn't happen. When the Democrats had control of two chambers of the Congress and the presidency, so they got three levers of power and they did not deliver on that for black people. They owe us more than that, but they couldn't even do that. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act didn't do that. You know, they took away the ability of rail workers, which we know as black people and other of our sisters and brothers who identify in other ways, took away their right to strike, which is the most powerful tool that the working class has. Mm-hmm. So when this man, you know, talking about fentanyl deaths and all of the, all, most of what he said that night for me were things that the Democrats should have achieved in the last Congress, which was the 117th Congress. And the reason why I want our, you know, your listeners to understand that is that power is a finite force. And when you have it, you never know whether or not you're going to keep it. They knew that the midterm elections were coming and that there would be a possibility, unless they were so arrogant, that they might lose one of the houses. So why not make policy like somebody else's life depends on it? Because most of those people who serve in that Congress and certainly this president, they're going to be set for life. This president's kids and his kids' kids and his kids' kids, they don't have to worry about much economically and socially and politically for the most part. Mm-hmm. But big mama's kids and big papa's kids in the hoods all over this country, they can't say the same thing. So that is why I'm saying they need to po- make policy like somebody else's kids lives depend on it. And they've lost the ability to do that. To say that the economy is doing well because you use the unemployment indicator that people have job, people are working. The question becomes, what type of jobs do they have? And do they have to work two or three of them to make ends meet, thereby diminishing their quality of life? Because now they can't spend time with their families or if they are single, you know, rolling in this world by themselves, they can't even do for themselves because they work in three or four jobs. And that's what I mean by substance over symbols. 63% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck in the United States of America. They don't have universal health care. And if they are insured, many folks are underinsured. You won't step to the plate on the pharmaceutical industry when he ta- when he gave that fentanyl stat, which is right. I think he said 70,000. OK, Mr. President, then what are you going to do to hold the pharmaceutical industry accountable for those deaths? Because it is because of them that people are literally dying in the United States of America. So I just found it empty and to see Democrats bouncing up and down, you know, clapping because each side to pick their team. I'm thinking, do y'all go home? Do you go to the district? Do you talk to Big Mama and Big Papa in the hoods where they misunderstood? Because if you did, they would tell you that that rosy picture that this president just painted and you popping up and down and clapping ain't they reality. They can't afford eggs. They Mm. can't afford the gas. 
the rent is too damn high. You know, there was a brother that ran, uh, I forget what year, I think it may have been 2006, and I need to memorize this brother's name, but you can look him up. But he ran, he said his party, it was rent is too damn high. He was ahead of his time because the rent is definitely too damn high, and so is everything else. So I, they're in a bubble. They're not in the streets. I, the State of the Union matters, but the state of the streets matter more. Ooh. And that is what was missing from that speech. We are here today with former Ohio Senator, professor, justice advocate, and activist, Ms. Nina Turner, gaining her perspective and insight on President Biden's State of the Union address, discussing the current state of the nation's democracy, as well as the perspective ideals of a progressive future that works for us all. So how about this? What would you say to, first off, you came to the right place. I'm with you. Okay. We, we here. Okay. Okay. We together. Yes, indeed we are. Cause you, you're saying a lot of things I've been saying on the radio uh, and on this show for the past few days. Um, but what would you say to someone who says, well, um, Republicans are very crafty in uh, mounting their opposition. Uh, the filibuster was weaponized as it has been for decades um, against democratic efforts. Um, what would you say to folks who say that uh, there were some uh, Democrats, but only in name that, you know, stood in, in opposition or held, you know, these these various bills uh, hostage for, you know, or or weaken the bills uh, or otherwise, you know, like I said, stood in the way of them, you know, making it across the finish line. Um, what would you say to people that would uh, mount that argument? Uh, to to say that it was there were other forces besides the president and the president has been operating in good faith. I would tell them that the what they enumerated. Factually correct, mm -hmm. but they got to shift their expectation. Mm -hmm. uh, we have certainly been seduced in this country to accept breadcrumbs, to accept that the people with the greatest amount of power cannot change anything. I got higher expectations of my dollars than we do with some of these politicians who are the most powerful people in the world. I would say that this president neglected to use the bully pulpit and all of his might to do away with the filibuster. When he was asked early on, when he first got there, he said, I don't want to touch the filibuster. So it is very much his fault, along with the Democrats in name only. We knew that Cinema and Manchin were so-called Democrats in name only. That That's not new. Mr. President, how are you going to use the bully pulpit? I... I certainly remember studying uh, Lyndon Baines, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, and also President FDR, flaws and all. But Lyndon Baines Johnson, and even as he called black work, black people the N-word, you know, Southern man uh, from the South, he understood this, that he was about making a legacy, whether he did these things for moral reasons or political reasons, what he did was leveraged power in a Congress where most of those members of Congress wore their bigotry on their suits like they wear the American flag pin on their suits today. Lyndon Baines Johnson let folks know, I almost said a cuss word, he let them know these two things I'm gonna get done. The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and somebody, somebody gonna get hurt if I don't get these done. He did the carrot and the stick. Mm 
I like and you mean to tell me that this president who has navigated the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate and was even the vice president for the first black president of the United States of America can't get some stuff done on behalf of black people? I would say we need to stop allowing him and others to use excuses. We knew that Cinema Manchin, Manchin got invited to the White House several times instead of the president having a press conference and letting this brother know, I tell you what, I'm about to gas up the jet. And I'm coming to West Virginia and I'm gonna let West Virginia and all Americans know who's standing in the way of my agenda to change material conditions. Now, Joe Manchin, either you're gonna stand in this press conference with me and tell the people you're rocking with me or I'm coming to a, a community near you. Get Go ahead, Air Force, Air Force One, Air Force One, let's get it gassed up. Mm. So in other words, we cannot allow these people to make, they're making excuses. He didn't want to get he didn't want to do away with the filibuster. And in some ways, we might not want to admit this, but I think Manchin and Cinema were, were convenient excuses for the Democrats to do a whole lot of nothing that they didn't want to do and that people were hiding behind those two as an excuse to not get these things done. That's a that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I appreciate that um, because. You know, I think that you're right. And I, I always admit this, um, you know, obviously around here, we have to pay attention to the media, what's going on and the popular narrative that was fed to the American public. And I'll admit that to a degree, I kind of bought into it, too, was that, you know, um, like, like I said, you know, well, these guys want to do these things, um, but there's some some strong opposition in key places where, you know, it just makes it impossible. Right. But um, the reason I say it's small- can I make one? Other, I'm sorry for cutting you. I just want another point. I want to draw people's attention to the first year of the term when, you know, the living uh, increased the minimum wage, certainly $7.25 since 2011, nowhere near a living wage, but it would increase the, the minimum wage. Federal minimum wage has not been increased since 2011. This president and this Congress had an opportunity to do this when Democrats had control. But instead, they put the blame on the parliamentarian. People got to peep the game. Yeah. So this is this is kind of what I was saying. Um, so the reason I said it's a small part of me that feels like, OK, maybe there was some some strong opposition in key strategic areas that prevented, you know, this progress that we uh, voted for. I also felt like, well, I, I witnessed four years of the previous administration bully their way through pretty much every level of politics and accomplished what it is they absolutely set out to do. And that they part. bulldozed with full support, with partial support, whatever, they got it done. And um, I think most importantly, the energy there, he didn't get the wall built, sure, but the energy was there. So it didn't feel performative in the same way that some of the other things that we're seeing now feel performative. So I agree with you. Um, when I listened to the State of the Union address, I felt there were some things that were performative and some things let me feel like, okay, maybe he listened. And and so I want to lean into that now, if I may. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the parents of Tyree Nichols uh, were in the audience and uh, he touched on policing reform. Now, policing reform is something that is of particular importance to me. Um, but I'd love to ask you, uh, in your idea uh, or your um, uh, uh, assessment, rather, uh, how 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 did he handle his approach to uh, at least articulating what needs to be done and what will be done with respect to um, reimagining policing in this country? And uh, I'd like to ask you as well, what does reimagining uh, public safety look like in your opinion? 
I have no problem with the rhetoric that he used or in your words, his articulation. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. Do I believe that he has some compassion in his heart for the Nichols family, what happened to them and others? No doubt about that. But the man is the president of the United States of America. Mm. If they really wanted to join, and I know he did some executive orders. Well, we know what happens with executive orders. They're easy to, easier to overturn than law. Now, law can be overturned, right? And ignored, right? Because the Supreme Court shows us very clearly. So we got that, but people got to get the stuff to the Supreme Court. And that's why we need Congress to act. So that's my, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Saying those nice things, having that family there. Hey, all right, you did that. But now what are you going to do beyond that? You're the most powerful man walking the face of the earth. What are you going to do? What sacrifices are you going to make? Whose apple cart are you going to upset? Mm. Whose day are you going to ruin in the power classes? Yeah. And you're not going to do any of that. You, the, the crazy thing is, uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. It, it seems, and I, I don't want to be naive, but it seems pretty simple um, from our position. I don't want to be naive. Again, I, I, it might be more complicated than I'm imagining, but it's not nearly as complicated. It cannot be nearly as complicated as, as it's made out to be. Um, especially for as long as it has been a, a barrier to progress for black people in this country. That's Um, it. It's not, and he was the author of the crime bill. So he need, he got a whole lot of cleaning up to do. He got a whole lot of, let me confess my sins here, Mm -hmm. making crooked paths straight. As Mm -hmm. one of the authors of the crime bill, he should be number one, two, three, four, and five in line Mm -hmm. to try to correct some wrongs here. And that means putting the full force and weight of his presidency on trying to get this change. Now, can all of this change happen on the federal level? Absolutely not. We need state level. We need regional level. We need local level. We need all the levels of government to understand that the way that not just law enforcement, but the legal system itself is rigged, has been that way since the beginning. The relationship that our community has with the notion of policing came from slave patrols. Mm -hmm. It was never to protect and serve our black bodies. It was the lord over our black bodies Mm -hmm. to control our black bodies. And we got to admit that as a nation. Now, what we going to do about it? And the fact that having black people or women on police departments does not necessarily mean that we're going to get a different result because the entire system is 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 white supremacy in action. And you asking law enforcement officers to do something different than how they were socialized in the world. And that comes for all of us. So, yes. Do some black law enforcement or Hispanic or women, do some of them, do their presence matter? Absolutely some. But to say that just diversifying the ranks of police departments or law enforcement agencies across this country will solve the conundrum of white supremacy and anti-blackness, we saw it live and in living color, that that in and of itself without hiring people who have some capacity to love and understand and deeply want to serve the black community and other marginalized community, just putting a black face in those places do not does not change it. It is what is in them. And those five men plus that one white man they tried to hide. But let me just focus on the five black men. They are uh, they are an embarrassment they are a stain on the black community and i argue that if they were a teacher a doctor a lawyer or a street sweeper with the mentality they, that they had there's no profession that they would have done excellently mm. so no amount of training 
can change their hearts because their hearts are rotten. Am I saying that training doesn't matter? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that diversifying law enforcement agency doesn't matter? No, I'm not saying that. But it's the substance of the person that comes into that space. They hold the power of life and death in their hands with that badge and that gun. And trust me, my baby, my millennial son is in law enforcement. Mm. And I know a, a traffic stop can go wrong. I get it. Many a police officer has been killed just by, hey, just stopping, pulling somebody over. They ain't done anything. I get it. But the system itself, we're not talking about just individuals. And that is what this country fails to realize. This president gave more money to law enforcement agencies. Well, there you go. Instead of giving more money for education, instead of giving go. more money for health care. So go. every time the black community makes an excuse for him or anybody else that is elected, it breaks my heart. We must stop being complicit in our own demise and we must stop loving elected officials more than we love ourselves and our babies. Mm. I'm a like you. I may like your swag, like how you move in the world. That's fine. But business is business. What have they done for us? To quote the great Janet Jackson, what have they done for us lately? Not a whole lot. And part of it is our fault. Because we ain't even the mistress. You know, black community, we used to be the mistress. The mistress get some trinkets every now and then. We the side piece. Side piece gets nothing. And it is a shame because it is an insult to our ancestors, is an insult to us, and it is an insult to generations yet unborn that we are allowing ourselves to be played by the duopoly in this country. And because we give most of our votes, over 90% to the Democratic Party, is why I call the Democratic Party out the most, not letting the Republicans off the hook either. Ramses, we're going to have to do this again. I'm, oh, my listen, goodness. Listen, can I can we listen. Can we do this again? We, we absolutely can. Before you go, though, I, I know time is short. Do me a favor i would love for you to talk about the uh, hello somebody podcast let people know where they can tap in and get more of your content your social media website all that sort of stuff well thank you so much for this and it was such an honor to be with you and i would love to come back please again. do and thanks to your team to your amazing team of maggie and chris so hello somebody is uh, something i was doing on on iheart radio on the black effect network with the one and only charlamagne the god they people can go and and look at that or get that on wherever they get their podcast i'm not doing that anymore but if they want to go back and um find some of the past uh, some of the past shows, they can certainly do that. But right now, I am the host of a show on the TYT Network, Unbossed, okay. with Nina Turner. And people can go to YouTube, just put in Unbossed YouTube, Nina Turner, and it will come right up and they can subscribe for free. On Twitter, I am Nina Turner. On in, on the gram, I am Nina Turner, Ohio. Uh, I think on every other, every other like social media, I'm Nina Turner, Ohio. and on, But on Twitter, I'm Nina Turner. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you staying as long as you have. It's been an honor. We've been looking thank forward you. to it. Uh, and of course, I appreciate your insight on all these things that matter to all of us. And clearly they matter to you as well. Uh, and I, I'd like to thank you for your commitment to the informed, inspired and prosperous future of our black community. Once again, today's guest is former Ohio Senator, professor, justice advocate and activist, Ms. Nina Turner. And thank you for what you do. You are a gift to the world. And I look forward to coming back. In her 2017 speech at the National Action Network's Martin Luther King March in Washington, D.C., educating and inspiring the crowd in every word of her address, Ms. Nina Turner closed her statements highlighting the following life advice she had received from her grandmother. Quote, when I 
asked grandma, what does it take to be successful in life? She said, all you need are the three bones, the wishbone, the jawbone, and the backbone. She said the wishbone will keep you hoping and dreaming because hope is the motivator, but the dream is the driver. The jawbone is what will give you the courage to speak truth to power. But the most important bone of them all is the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious bone. It is the backbone because it'll keep you standing through your trials and tribulations, unquote. Reminding the masses in that powerful speech that we can't have a testimony without a test and leaving her audience with a riveting confirmation and call to action. Let us leave today's conversation with those same sentiments, pressing forward towards change for the better, standing firm in knowing that the black community has successfully overcome similar hardships in the past to what we are facing today with our unwavering faith, commitment to community, and commitment to constructive action. Let us stand firm in our knowing that we will indeed continue to overcome. This has been a production of the Black Information Network. Today's show is produced by Chris Thompson. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, use the red microphone talkback feature on the iHeartRadio app. We'd love to hear from you. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe and download all of our episodes. Find your daily podcast host at Ramses Jaw on all social media. We look forward to your joining us tomorrow as we share our news with our voice from our perspective right here on the Black Information Network Daily Podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Delve into the visceral world of hip hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, already a know. podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.